All right, again, so hopefully, I know many of you are reading the Pilgrim's Progress right now. Some of you are reading it with your families, you've told me. Some of you may not be reading it and may not have any intention of ever reading it, but the intention is in these classes uh, to meet you where you are. So if you are a reader of the Pilgrim's Progress, we hope to help you read it more uh, effectively uh, to help you understand the allegory a little more and, and meditate productively on some of the, the most interesting aspects of it. If you've never read it, we would like to encourage you to read it. I'm not going to bind your conscience, but we think it would be a blessing to you uh, to read great literature alongside of the Bible, and this certainly qualifies as great literature and Christian literature. If you never read it, though, that's perfectly fine. I hope that you get enough of the story uh, as we go through this series of studies this year uh, that you will be able to understand it and, uh, and appreciate it. And so it'll be almost as if you had read the story. We're not going to read every part, every line, but we're going to read a lot of it, and, uh, and hopefully you will profit from that. Now, today, looking at the slough of despond, we first have to deal with the question of how actually to pronounce it, because I have been criticized, including in this church, by various members for how I pronounce it. I do pronounce it slough. And others pronounce it slew, and others, yeah, right? So I have been told that it's because I listen to so many British audiobooks, so many British narrators of audiobooks that I, but you know I can't pronounce anything correctly anyway. Like I mispronounced half of your names when you joined this church. So, you know, that's just part of, part of uh, my charm. Um, this is just one of those words in English, like English is impossible. If I had not been born a native English speaker, I would never have taken on the daunting task of learning English. Um, it's, it's one of those words that can be pronounced, you know, in different ways depending on which word it actually is. So you're familiar with that. I'm going to pr- pronounce it slough, like plow or cow. If you pronounce it another way, I don't care. It's perfectly fine. All right? So let me just remind you of where we're at in the story. Christian has awakened to the danger that he was in as a resident of the city of destruction. He's been given a book that tells him of the judgment that is about to befall them all and yet does not give them any hope of rescue. One of the part of the despair of Christian in those early pages is that he sees no escape from what is coming. But then he meets a man named Evangelist who gives him a scroll and directions to go to the wicker to the wicket gate uh, and to follow the light. Christian cannot actually see the gate from where he's standing, but he can see the light just barely. Follow the light to the wicket gate. And at this point, Christian is now Christian. He's no longer graceless. Christian is a covenantal category. We've talked about that many times before. Providentially, we talked about that uh, in some ways in the sermon this morning. So whether you think Christian has been regenerated or not, whether you think he's saved or not, right? you're going to have these three key moments. This is one, and the second one is going to be when he gets to the wicket gate and passes through, and the third one is when he gets to the cross and the burden falls off and rolls into the tomb. Uh, Each of those places is going to be a key moment in terms of his salvation and in terms of his personal relationship with God. And different people might associate his conversion or his regeneration or his assurance with different events. I think here he is converted. I think he is now a Christian. I think that's how Bunyan intends us to see this. He is called Christian. He is repenting of living in the city of destruction. He's fleeing judgment. He is pursuing Christ as bidden by an evangelist, a herald of the gospel. And initially, he is accompanied by two neighbors, obstinate and pliable. 
And the text said that both of them initially joined him with the express purpose of getting him to turn back. But when they see that he is not going to be dissuaded, obstinate decides to give up, go back home. But pliable remains. He decides to stay and go with Christian, at least for a little while. And as they are walking, this is where we left off two weeks ago, Christian is recounting to him the descriptions of the celestial city that he has read about in his book. And as they go, this is what happens. Bunyan picks up the narrative and says, Now I saw in my dream that just as they had ended this talk, they drew nigh to a very miry slough that was in the midst of the plain. And they, being heedless, did both fall suddenly into the bog. In other words, they don't see it coming, and they're not really kind of paying attention. They're just they're enjoying this conversation, and they stumble into it. The name of the slough was Despond. Here, therefore, they wallowed for a time, being grievously bedaubed with the dirt. In other words, they're spotted and covered, and just like the mud is all over them. And Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink into the mire. Remember, he has this heavy weight on him that has not fallen off. You can be a Christian and still have a heavy weight of guilt and shame on your back. You can be a Christian and still be entangled in your sin. And Christian is right now burdened by that weight, and it's causing him to sink into this pit, into this slough of despond. Now, I want you to visualize this scene. It's very important to be able to understand what the allegory is about. They cannot easily climb out of this bog. They appear to be shrouded in mist, unable to see one another, as you'll see in just a minute, or to see clearly any way out. It's as if before you get to the slough, you can't see it coming, but as soon as you're in it, you can't see out of it. Does that make sense? And once you're in it, you are completely isolated there. Even though you know pliable is near you, even though you're able to hear each other, you can't see each other. And you can't see the, the outer limits, right? You can't see any way to get from where you are out of this place. The Slough of Despond might be thought of as a combination of Tolkien's dead marshes, the Princess Bride's fire swamp, and a pit of quicksand. You know, it kind of embodies some of all of those elements. If you're familiar with any of those references, that might give you some help in terms of imagining this. It's important to visualize the scene because the way that allegory works, it doesn't work simply by propositions. It, it awakens your imagination. And this is the way that all literature, by the way, is designed to communicate. Literature communicates by drawing you into an experience. So if you, if you read literature dispassionately, you won't understand what it's about. You won't profit from it in the way that you could. And allegory, it's, like almost, it's, it's more true. It's like ten times true. That allegory draws you into an experience. And so if you read The Pilgrim's Progress with your imagination turned off, if you read it the, the way that you would read you know, an instruction manual, then it's, it's, gonna, it's not going to make any sense to you. It, it, you're really going to struggle to appreciate or understand it. They could not see the bog before they fell in, and once they fall in, they cannot see any way out of it. If they had watched their feet more carefully, or if they had known beforehand of its existence, maybe they would have been on guard and, and uh, better prepared. But I think Bunyan is illustrating the despair that sometimes comes upon Christians very suddenly. Like You should know the slough of despond is, is out there on the road. 
And in fact, there's not just one. There's, there's multiple ones. In fact, Bunyan is going to illustrate this not by multiple sloughs, but he's going to illustrate this recurring experience of fear and despair at different points by different images. But you and I could think of this as just, there are pits like this along the way. You know that they're there. You need to watch out for them. But sometimes you just fall in. Sometimes you just feel overtaken. You don't see it coming. You feel alone in the dark, unable to see anything or any way out, and feeling entirely hopeless about your situation. And so the story goes on. Pliable says, Ah, neighbor Christian, where are you now? Now what does that tell you? They're walking side by side when they fall into the slough, right? But what does it tell you? What's Bunyan telling? Remember, the characteristic of good creative writing is show, not, not tell, right? So Bunyan doesn't say they couldn't see each other. He's, he has Pliable say, where are you? Where are you? They can't see each other. And Christian replies, truly, I do not know. Now, this is a characteristic of being in the slough. You can't see your brethren. You can't see your friends, you can't see any way out, you feel entirely hopeless, and you don't know why. I mean, nobody here could could relate to this at all, right? So just hypothetically imagine, this is like, you know, a monster with ten heads, just kind of imagine somebody who falls into despair and can't tell you why. You know, and their spouse comes and says, well, what's wrong? And it's like, nothing and everything. Right? That's not helpful, right? but it's just the reality. Where are you, Christian? I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I don't know where I am, and I don't know any way of getting out of it. At this, Pliable began to be offended, offended, and angrily said to his fellow, is this the happiness you've told me all this while of? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, in other words, if things are going this bad at the beginning of our journey, What may we expect between this and our journey's end? May I get out again with my life? You shall possess the brave country alone for me. In other words, if I could just extricate myself from this, if I could get out of this bog, you can have that celestial city. Like, I don't care anything about it. If I could only get out, I'm turning back. And with that, he gave a desperate struggle or two and got out of the mire on that side of the slough which was next to his own house. So away he went, and Christian saw him no more. Now, literally, I mean, there's a reason that just a few paragraphs in this story are occupying us our whole time here, and this could have been like multiple weeks of our study. It's not going to be. Don't worry, right? But how, how does Pliable react to this experience? Christian feels hopeless. Pliable feels angry. And Pliable feels angry with Christian. You got me into this. Christian didn't ask Pliable to come. Pliable goes after Christian in order to turn him around. He voluntarily begins to follow Christian. He voluntarily decides to stay when obstinate goes back. But he's angry at Christian. Is that fair? Not fair at all. It's just the way that it is. Everyone in despond is alone, even if he is not alone. Some become despairing, some become depressed, and some become angry at their situation. One of the counseling classes I took uh, in my, I think it was my undergrad program, uh, said that the most common symptoms of depression, like clinical depression, are anger and irritability. I wouldn't have guessed that. I would have thought, well, sadness, right? Uh, fatigue, lethargy, you know, anger and irritability. I thought, wow, maybe I am depressed. I, I don't know. I'm irritated all the time, right? Um, that happens. That's part of what 
you might experience in the Slough of Despond or what you might experience from others because it exacerbates feelings of loneliness and a sense that no one will help or can help even when you have people offering you help. Sometimes you just can't hear it or see it. The slough affects different men in different ways and sometimes affects us differently on different days. But these are the kinds of things that you'll experience when you fall in there. Discouragement and despair brings divisions in fellowship. The slough does not bring people together. It drives them apart. Oftentimes, it's not always the case, but oftentimes what you see when you see people leaving a church is someone has fallen into the slough of despond. And, and you're trying to reach and you're trying to encourage and you're trying to help pull them out and they won't because you don't care about them. You're like, no, I care about them. No, you don't care about me. It's because they're in the slough of despond. And that's just, that's just the reality. So you've got, to, you've got to know that this is on the road. And you've got to be able to recognize that danger so that you can better help others, but so that you don't fall into some of this yourself. When some, when, when some day you feel hopeless and like, Nobody loves me, everybody hates me, I'm just going to go and eat worms. You need to realize, maybe, maybe I fell into the slough of despond. And maybe other people don't hate me, are not rejecting me, are not trying to lead me into a pit, but maybe I'm simply in despond right now. The slough causes many people to turn back. They decide the cost of this journey is not worth the promise on the other side of it. And pliable in this case, we're going to see more illustrations of this, but pliable in this case is the seed sown on rocky soil. Matthew 13, 20, He who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a time. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. So there's initially a conversion experience. Initially, there's joy and enthusiasm, but then it's discouragement that leads to apostasy from our, from our standpoint. They will misidentify their sorrows and seek to return to the good old days of slavery in Egypt, right? Hasn't that always like, been weird to you when you're reading the Pentateuch and you've got the children of Israel in the wilderness and saying, let's appoint a leader and go back to Egypt? What are you talking about? Like better to be in a uh, slave in Egypt than to die in the wilderness. You're like, they were chunking your baby boys into the river. What are you talking about? But that's, that's the way we think. And that's a recurring feature in Scripture. And it'll be a recurring part of your Christian experience if you're not careful. In Jeremiah 44, during the final days of Judah alone as the people are going into captivity, they angrily respond to Jeremiah, who's warning them, don't go to Egypt. Submit to the Babylonians who have taken the city but haven't burned it yet. They said, we will burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done, we and our fathers, for then we had plenty of food, were well off, and saw no trouble. That kind of idolatry is the very reason that Jerusalem has fallen to the Babylonians. But But in their mind, those were the good old days. Since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. Now, that is just the kind of stupidity that sin prompts us to say. And you have to be careful because if you start talking this way, you will start believing that that's true, and it's not true. But if you lie to yourself long enough, you won't be able to see the truth anymore. That's terrifying, but that's, that's the case. Lewis and Magician's nephew warns us, right, when Uncle Andrew hears the animals talking, he knows good and well animals don't talk. 
And so after a while, he can't hear them talking anymore. He only hears them growling at him. Lewis warns. He says, the problem with trying to convince yourself that something is not true is eventually you succeed. And so if you convince yourself that the good old days when you were, you know, living, living it up, not walking with the Lord, being completely dissolute in your life, th- those were the great days, everything was fine, you'll eventually believe that. And you'll want to go back to that. And that's what Pliable's doing. He's going back to the city of destruction because he says, this is, this is miserable, everything was great back at home. Hypocrites and reprobates are exposed by the slough. But I want you to notice that Christian is there too. So one of the dangers of this image in the allegory is that you might think, well, if I fall into the slough of despond, then it's proof that I'm not a Christian, right? Because, because I don't have assurance in my faith. I'm despairing, so I must not be a Christian. Well, Chris, Christian is in the slough. You cannot decide from your experience of despair that you do not belong to God. The story that Bunyan tells here does not begin by telling us which characters are in the book of life. It reveals whose names are written there by their covenant faithfulness over time. Christian is not, uh, spoiler alert, Christian makes it to the city, okay? I know, sorry. Um, Christian is saved. But Christian sure seems like he's going to be lost multiple times along this, this road. And Christian is not the only character in the story who is saved in the end. But there's going to be a lot of others who seem like they're saved for a time and are not. And Bunyan doesn't tell us in the preface, now, Christian was chosen by God before the foundation of the world, wrote his name in the Lamb's Book of Life. So, you know, just like, don't worry, he's going to be fine, right? <laughs> the eel does not get her, right? He doesn't, he doesn't spoil it that way. He lets us see over time who belongs to God by their faithfulness. But some of them fall into pretty serious circumstances in the meantime. Christian does not have assurance of his salvation yet in the story. But even true believers will struggle with that assurance. In fact, this isn't the last time that Christian is going to struggle in this way. He's going to struggle again multiple times, including as he dies. As Christian dies in the story, it's one of the most powerful parts of part one, I think. One of the most helpful parts of part one is that Christian actually questions as he dies. And you think, well, you know, Bunyan's a, a Puritan. You know, he would ne- like anybody who has doubts at, at his death is obviously a reprobate. Nope. Nope. Christian's saved. But even a true Christian sometimes has doubts like that. There will be many sloughs we come to during our pilgrimage, but we do not have to fall into all of them. There are ways to recognize and guard against and either avoid or quickly extricate ourselves from despond. But that doesn't mean we will avoid it entirely. Westminster Confession of Faith 18.4 says, true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways, many different ways, shaken, diminished, and intermitted, as by negligence and preserving of it, by falling into some special sin which wounded the conscience and grieved the spirit, by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance and suffering, even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light, Yet are they never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty, out of which, by the operation of the Spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived. And by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. Christian feels like he's lost, but he's not. And he's not going to be, but it's pretty rough for a little while. Now, you need to pay attention to this, because this part of the confession actually is summarizing some really valuable biblical data that will help you avoid some of the despondency you might otherwise fall into, right? So 
Guys, you go and watch porn and you start having problems with your assurance? Yeah, like who would have thought, right? You, you start treating your wife in an in a unchristian way? Yeah, like your, your spiritual life is going to kind of tank for a little while. But you should have known that. And that's okay. That's not the end of your story. You might find yourself in the slough of despond for all kinds of different reasons. But once you recognize how you get there, some of those times you can avoid or at least minimize and mitigate some of the negative factors. Well, we pick back up the narrative again. Pliable has climbed out, but on the wrong side because he's climbed out and he's going back to the city of destruction. Christian is still in the midst. Wherefore, Christian was left to tumble in the slough of despond alone, but still he endeavored to struggle to that side of the slough that was farthest from his own house and next to the wicket gate. Now, pay attention to that. If you are going to be in a bog, if you are going to find yourself in quicksand, you might as well try to get to the other side. Right? You don't just give up. He doesn't just sink, and he doesn't go backwards. He's like, well, I may not make it, but if I'm, if I'm not going to make it, I'm not going to make it as I'm trying to fall that direction. I'm trying to fall forward. The which he did, but could not get out because of the burden that was upon his back. That guilt, that shame, that grief is holding him down. He can't get out on his own. Bunyan says, but I beheld in my dream that a man came to him whose name was Help. It's not the most creative name, but it makes the point, right? And asked him what he did there. Sir, said Christian, I was bid to go this way by a man called Evangelist, who directed me also to yonder gate that I might escape the wrath to come. And as I was going thither, I fell in here. But why did you not look for the steps? Fear followed me so hard that I fled the next way and fell in. Then said he, give me thine hand. So he gave him his hand and he drew him out and he set him upon sound ground and bid him go on his way. I love that exchange, by the way. Like, Walking along by the swamp and sees Christian in there. He's like, what are you doing in there? <laughs> well, I fell in. Why didn't, you, why didn't you use the steps? I didn't know there were steps. You want to get out? Okay. <laughs> it's a great, like if you can read this story without laughing, you're not, re- turn your imagination on, right? Like turn off notifications on your phone and turn on your imagination, right? So Christian's burden is, is the problem that's keeping him from being able to extricate himself. You may not be able to just feel better on your own, Right? And again, like your, your, your spouse is asking what's wrong, and you're like, nothing and everything. And so your spouse is like, okay, well, you know, like, my wife is crazy. Okay, you know. Um, he's not able to help. You can't explain. Well, just feel better. That's not how that works. Christian can't pull himself out. He needs a brother to come along, grab his hand, and lift him out. He associates the slough, Bunyan does, with conviction of sin in a new convert or a poorly taught believer. He's going to explain this here in just a minute, but I want to go ahead and introduce it here. I think Bunyan, in this scene, is paralleling his own experience. He's illustrating it, uh, his own experience of conviction. If you've ever read Bunyan's autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, it's a hard read, not because it's difficult like, to understand, but it's just agonizing. Like Bunyan is so long without any assurance of grace. And I think he would say he was so long without any true faith. That, that might be arguable, but regardless. For so long, he languishes under conviction. 
And that is primarily what he's trying to illustrate here is that at this early part of your Christian life, the guilt, the shame, the regret, the lack of confidence in God's grace is going to make you more easily fall into despair. Now, I think that's true and that's valuable, but I also think as you look at the rest of the narrative, you'll see that the very same experiences continue to afflict Christian long after he has his assurance. So I don't think it's as narrowly limited as that. The weight of guilt and grief certainly exacerbate despair. But such experiences may not be found only in the early part of a Christian's life. But during that all, you have to know that God is eager and willing to help. The slough can be safely navigated if you know where to step. Now, Christian had not been warned about the existence of the slough, and so he certainly didn't know how to navigate it. But there are steps to get through it, right? And this is, again, where I would remind you, Tolkien's Dead Marshes, Gollum is leading Frodo and Sam through the marshes because it's important to know where to step. You don't follow the lights. The lights will lead you the wrong way. You have to know where to step, but if you know where to step, you can get safely through them. And it's the same thing with the Slough of Despond. Fear, in Scripture, is the opposite of faith. You'll see that over and over, especially in the Gospels, but fear is the opposite of of faith. Faith trusts God in the face of fear. So you're, you experience fear, and then you trust God in that experience, and that, that's what faith actually is. Faith is actually trusting God at that moment. Bunyan, I think, is alluding to Psalm 42 here. It says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. But that's a deliberate choice that you have to make. You have to choose to hope in God. It's not about how you feel. It's like what Paul says uh, in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always. Or in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. In those passages, he's not talking about feeling joyful. You might not feel joyful. You might be in the slough of despond. But you choose to hope in God. You choose to rejoice in God. I can't rejoice in my circumstances. I feel terrible. I feel hopeless. But I choose to rejoice in God and put my hope in God. And, and that's where singing, praying, but I repeat myself, um, chanting, Psalm 42 can be helpful. Is I don't feel hope in God. And so in singing that psalm, the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Hope in God. I told you to hope. I told you to hope. Well, I don't feel hopeful. I, I didn't ask you how you felt. I told you to hope. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. We are all that father in Mark 9, 24. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. There's a scripture verse to pray every day. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That's the way you pray in the slough of despond for sure. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Okay? We pick up the narrative. Then I stepped to him that plucked him out and said, Sir, this is going, going up to help. Sir, wherefore, since over this place is the way from that city of destruction to yonder gate, is it that this plat is not mended that poor travelers might go thither with more security? Okay, that's, that's a difficult sentence to understand. What, what Bunyan is doing is just like John in the apocalypse. He's going up to one of the characters and he's asking him a question in the dream. And he says... If travelers are trying to get from the city of destruction to the wicked gate, and this slough is right in the way, why hasn't somebody done anything about that? Why haven't they made this a safer road to travel? Why do they leave something like this when they know pilgrims are going to have to pass through? 
And he said unto me, this miry slough is such a place as cannot be mended. It is the descent whither the scum and filth that attends conviction for sin doth continually run. And therefore it is called the slough of despond. For still, as the sinner is awakened about his lost condition, there arise in his soul many fears and doubts and discouraging apprehensions, which all of them get together and settle in this place. And this is the reason of the badness of this ground. Now, Bunyan is not making a metaphysical comment here, but I do want you to think about this for a second. What if you visualized sin and guilt and corruption like this? in your life, as something that like accumulates, like barnacles on a ship, like mold on something, right? Uh, like it's, 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 it's accumulating, like it's the dust and the dirt and the grime and the grease and like you move, you pull out the, the, the stove in your kitchen and you're like, oh my, like things I wish I didn't know. Let me just push that back and <laughs> pretend like everything's clean back there, right? You know, what if, what if that's the way the conviction of sin was? What if your guilt, it, it kind of has this accumulating contamination. And, and I know that I'm forgiven, and yet there's this stain, this residue that is creating this bog in my heart, right? And I can fall in there periodically. And it's because I haven't, I haven't dealt with some of this in a, in, a, in a full and biblical way. He says, It is not the pleasure of the king that this place should remain so bad. His laborers also have, by the direction of his majesty's surveyors, been for above this 1,600 years employed about this patch of ground, if perhaps it might have been mended. Yea, and to my knowledge, said he, there have been swallowed up at least 20,000 cartloads, yea, millions of wholesome instructions that have at all seasons been brought from all places of the king's dominions, and they that can tell say they are the best materials to make good ground of the place, if so be it might have been mended. But it is the slough of despond still, and so will be when they have done what they can. I, I love this. Like Bunyan's writing in the 17th century, so he says, you know, for 1,600 years the king's been sending men out here with just cart loads of wholesome instructions. It's fill dirt to try to fill in the swamp, but it's just swallowed up millions and millions of those instructions. You know what that tells you? Despair is not remedied just by propositional truth. Now, propositional truth is really important. Like, don't hear me some kind of postmodern, you know, touchy-feely way denying the importance of propositional truth, but you are not going to feel better just because I recite my catechism, right? Now, reciting your catechism is not a bad idea. Reciting scripture is an even better idea. But it's not going to just be propositions that fix the problem because the slough tends to swallow those up too. It's, it's just a bog. But God is continuing to pour out grace and truth up through the Reformation. That's, what, that's the point that he's making. I mean, like, you go back prior to the Reformation, you read the church fathers, it's glorious. It won't make you Roman Catholic. It'll just make you love Jesus. You read the medieval, even the scholastic theologians, some of them have got, you know, unfortunate ideas, unbiblical misunderstandings, but they'll just make your heart sing. They'll just make your heart soar. It's not like reading modern theology that is like a sawdust sandwich, you know? It's reading theological poetry, and it's amazing, right? But still, we had to have a Reformation, and we still need Reformation, right? That's an ongoing problem. So he continues. True there are, by the direction of the lawgiver, certain good and substantial steps 
placed even through the very midst of the slough, but at such time as this place doth much spew out its filth, as it doth against change of weather, these steps can hardly be seen. And if they be, uh, and if they be men, through the dizziness of their heads, step aside, and then they are bemired to, uh, to purpose, notwithstanding the steps be there. But the ground is good when they are once got in at the gate. So what does he say? He says, well, there are steps. The problem is you can't see it. Like When the weather gets up, when the wind and the rain and the fog, you can't see them. And then if you step beside the step instead of on the step, well, then you fall into the bog. And that's what he's explaining. So there are, there are good steps. Like you, There are moments in your Christian life where you have perfect clarity about how to deal with depression and discouragement. Those days are not when you are feeling discouraged or depressed. Have you noticed that? Like, you know exactly what every depressed person in this congregation needs, except for you. Like, you've got the solution to everybody else's problems, because right there, there's the step. Step on the step, dummy, right? But the problem is, when the weather changes, and the, the fog, and the rain, and the wind, you step beside it, and then there you are. You're in the slough of despond, and you can't find them. And that's just, that's just the way that it works, and so knowing that it works that way, okay, well, I can, I can be careful. I can pay attention. I don't want to, to, to kind of behave in some of the ways that make me more prone to fall into the slough of despond. If I find myself there, I'm going to look for the steps that are navigating through it. And if I find that I've missed the step, I'm going to recognize where I am, know what to expect, and know ultimately how God's going to pull me out of this. Bunyan, I think, intends this symbol to be a commentary to some extent on the despair that is created by centuries of gospel neglect and the works righteousness of sacerdotalism. I think that's the point that he's making in the 1600 years. He's saying this truth has been poured out by God's spirit for 1600 years, and yet still all we have is despair. And that really is the way that a Puritan would talk about the conflicts in the Reformation, right? Is that Rome, I mean, this is the irony that that Lewis has pointed out. The Puritans are caricatured as these sour, dour, joyless, people with stiff collars and straight back chairs, which is true at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century. That's why Chesterton has such incredibly insightful critiques of the degraded, decomposed Puritanism of his day. Like, I I know that it bothers you that I read Chesterton, um, but really the way in which Chesterton mocks reformed people is the way that reformed people should mock reformed people. Because he's looking not at true Puritanism. He's not looking at true Reformed theology. He's looking at the degraded version of it that, as it stood at the end of the 19th century. Um, but the reality is, in the Reformation, the Puritans were all celebratory. They were the joyful ones. They were saying, marriage is good, sex is good, feasting is good, God intends us to have joy, we ought to have lots of colors, you know, because, because God is a great God. And it was the Roman Catholics that were saying, you need to fast more. We need more of you to be celibate. We need more of you to join monastic orders. We need more of you to be climbing on your knees up you know, stone steps. And, and so Bunyan is, I think, making this point. He's saying, we have this slough because for 1,600 years, people have been neglecting the gospel. And so their conviction has been unremedied by all of that goodness and truth. He also believes that this slough is a danger prior to coming through the gate as, as a consequence. So when you, when you are trying to find your way, um, then, then this slough is going to be there. At the same time, I'm going to have to hustle here, but at the same time, the slough is not merely a danger for those who do not understand why they are not Roman Catholic. 
There are plenty of Reformed Christians who have set up teepees in the slough and decided to live there because that's what they think the Puritans would want. As if they believe that God is most glorified in us when we are most uncertain of our election and suspicious of our regeneration. That's not the kind of Puritan you want to be. That's the kind of Puritans that there were in Chesterton's day. You, the Puritans in Bunyan's day were more like Chesterton. Right? You want to be jo- jovial on your way to glory. Right? You, want to, you want to love Jesus and have a good time about it. So God is not most glorified the more depressed you are. God is not, is not more glorified by you being discouraged and suspicious and constantly in doubt. Right? That's a, it's not being presumptuous to have joy in your salvation. Right? The Bible is constantly talking to you about the joy and peace of your salvation. But the slough would rob you of that. So think of the slough as a danger all along the way. Some stumble into it more easily and more frequently than others do. But Bunyan is going to continue to represent this danger by various images as we go. Um, Yeah, all right, let me go on. Here's the uh, last part of the, the narrative we want to look at. Now, I saw in my dream that by this time, Pliable was got home to his house. So his neighbors came to visit him, and some of them called him wise man for coming back, and some called him fool for hazarding himself with Christian. Others again did mock at his cowardliness, saying, Surely, since you began to venture, I would not have been so base as to have given out for a few difficulties. In other words, giving up. So Pliable sat sneaking among them. But at last he got more confidence, and then they all turned their tails and began to deride poor Christian behind his back, and thus much concerning Pliable. It's the end of Pliable's story. So what does Pliable do? He goes home, and some people say, Ah, finally wisened up and came back. And some said, you're such a fool, you should never have gone in the first place. Others said, you're such a turncoat. Like, you are pliable, right? I mean, at first you say you're going to go, and then you don't. And so they're mocking him, and he's kind of sitting skulking in the corner. But then after a little while, he realizes, hey, the fellowship of the miserable, we can find unity in finding a common enemy. And so they all begin mocking Christian, who's still in the slough for all pliable knows, Right? And this is, this is an important part of the story. Many will allow difficulty and discouragement to convince them that life was better in Egypt. They will say stupid things like, we remember the fish which we ate freely in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. I mean, like, wouldn't you be glad to be a slave just so long as you had onions and garlic, right? I mean, I agree that onions and garlic make life better, right? Uh, think objectively about your life. What trade are you making? Because what pliable does here is what a lot of professing believers in the church do. Is they trade what God promises for something else that they think is going to be more satisfying. The slough is unpleasant, and therefore the risks are not worth taking. I can go back to the city, and I can enjoy fellowship there. I have friends, I have neighbors, we have a good time. We mock Christians who are stupid enough to leave their home and enjoy you know, the the comforts of this world and instead go and fall into the slough. How easily do you give up? How easily do you quit? Uh, This is the kind of question that the story is going to raise. I I was thinking about last week, I was was battling with a very specific temptation at a moment in time, and it suddenly occurred to me that Apollyon was standing in the road. Now, this is a little further down the story, right? If you haven't read it, there's going to be a moment where Christian realizes I actually have to draw my sword, and I have to fight to save my soul. Like, if I'm going to be saved or lost based upon my ability 
to wield a weapon today, right? If any of you have read Paralandra, and if any of you haven't read Paralandra, you need to get on that. But Lewis and Paralandra, there's a similar moment where Ransom suddenly realizes, I've been a Gnostic all of my life, and God intends me to punch the devil in the face. It's a really startling moment in the story. And I realized at that moment, you know, it's a, it's a relatively minor, like, you know, your temptations are always minor from my vantage point. That's a relatively minor temptation. But, but I suddenly realized Apollyon is standing in the path. And if Apollyon came through my daughter's window, he would die in my house right then. Like, just, that's, that's what would happen. But am I willing to fight that hard for my soul? Am I willing to, to go to war? against my flesh, against my pride, against whatever is my problem at that moment. Well, pliable gives up really easily. He falls into a bog and he says, this is not fun anymore, I'm going to go home. How easily do you give up? The damned deceive themselves by derision. Pliable has to mock Christian in order to justify himself. Do you understand that? He has to mock Christian in order to justify himself. Because by mocking Christian, he's testifying to the fact that I am the wiser of the two because I turned around. There's a progression to wickedness that we don't need to miss. In Psalm 1 and verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of Yahweh, and in his law he meditates day and night. So that you want to pay attention there. He walks, then he stands, then he sits. Counsel, way, seat. So first he walks in the counsel of the ungodly. He listens to the wicked. He listens to the unwise. Right? And then he stands in the path. He goes and takes his stand where they would have him to go in the city of destruction rather than in the slough of despond. And finally he sits down among the scornful. There's that progression in unbelief. And if you are not careful, that's the progression you will follow. You begin listening to the advice of the ungodly, and it won't be long before you choose to stand in the way of sinners, and finally sit comfortably in the company of those who would mock and despise the way of God. So the point here is, don't be Mr. Pliable. Don't be easily swayed. Don't be unwilling to persevere. Don't be willing to join in mocking those who are more faithful than you've been in pursuing the way of the Lord. Be careful of that because it's too easy to justify ourselves that way. Meanwhile, help has lifted Christian out of the bog and put him back on solid ground and he's going to continue to make his way toward the wicked gate, but you're going to have to come back next week to see that. Next week, we are going to deal with the section on Mr. Worldly Wiseman which is fantastic. There's no part of the story that's not fantastic, just some parts that are fantasticer than others. Um, And then, Lord willing, the last Sunday of this month, we will get to the Wicked Gate and the House of the Interpreter, and we'll spend at least a couple of lessons in the House of the Interpreter, two or three, um, which contain just some of the, uh, the best analogies of the spiritual lessons that Bunyan wants to make. And there, he not only gives us the, the analogy, but he gives us the interpretation of the analogy, which is really helpful in knowing how to read the rest of the story. Okay? So I hope you're enjoying it. I hope you're profiting from it. I don't want this just to be entertaining. Uh, I hope it's not just entertaining, but I, I hope it is exciting you to read The Pilgrim's Progress. And if you're 
you say, well, pastor, I've already read it, I've already finished it, and you're barely begun it. Like, this is a book that rewards rereading. Reread it periodically, right? Begin to make notes. Go back and think about specific sections. I'll say one last thing. One of the characteristics of really great literature and, and I would just give as an illustration, like Mo, you can read Moby Dick this way. You shouldn't the first 10 times you read it. But um, you can read it in excerpts. Like the same way that you read the Bible, you, you don't sit down and read the Bible cover to cover every time you read it. Like you, you've got a Bible reading plan, but then there are some days where you just like, I just need a psalm. I just need to read a little Proverbs. I just want to read one of the stories from the Gospels to my kids. And that's perfectly fine. You're not misreading it when you do that. You need to read the whole thing. And the better you understand the whole story, the better able you can parachute into parts of the story. One of the characteristics of great literature is you can just pull that book off the shelf and you can parachute in. So some of you have been at my house for a meal or just for a visit, and I have pulled off the shelf, Great Divorce or something that Tolkien wrote or some other narrative and just like read you an excerpt, right? Which embarrasses my kids, but that's just what I do. And... Um, you can read the Pilgrim's Progress that way. You don't have to reread it every time. You could just say, I want to go back and reread the section on the Slav Despond because that's where I find myself today. And that, that's a great way to just kind of keep this book alongside of you throughout your life. Okay? All right. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious God, we're thankful for this time this morning that we can meditate on so precious a story written by so faithful a brother. We thank you, Lord, for John Bunyan and for uh, his faithfulness and the fruit that his ministry and life continue to bear even long after he has gone to see the face of his Savior. We pray that you would continue to profit us by means of this story and that by these classes, O Lord, and the conversations that arise from them, we would be encouraged and helped. O Lord, for any of our brothers and sisters who even today may find themselves wallowing in the slough of despond, we pray, God, that you would send a brother or sister to extend a hand to give them help, that they might find their feet once again on solid ground, and that you would bless us and help us to watch carefully our steps, that your word would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Carry us now through the Lord's day with joy, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. God bless you all. Thanks for participating.